Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the State of Art podcast. I am your host, Brent Morden, and today I'm joined by my friend and fellow composer, David Acevedo, for a very special conversation about musical identity crises. Before we begin, first of all, I want to thank all of you who tuned in to our first episode about uh, the future of live performance. I got a lot of really wonderful, productive feedback from you, and I'm so glad that we can continue. After a few months, we're back in action, churning out new episodes, talking about the present and future of arts and entertainment, and specifically today, how it relates to us as creative individuals. Because even if you're not an artist in a direct sense, you're not producing art or music, you are creative in some way. And we all deal with identity crises or moments of reflection on who we are in our lives in some capacity, right? Especially as artists. And so today, I'm pleased to introduce my friend, good friend and fellow composer, David Acevedo. Now, David and I, we go way back. Uh, we met while we were undergraduates at Columbia University. Uh, what, what, how, how did we meet? We had, uh, we had music theory together. That's right. right? Music theory 2, specifically. We had music theory 2 together. We both quickly learned that we are composers. We both play the trumpet. We uh, like to think deeply about the arts and about the world, really. And so we... we we, uh, we, we drew, we, we became drawn to one another and uh, remained close friends since then. Now, David is a graduate student at Stony Brook University, where, which, which degree are you going for? I'm going for my master's in music composition. Master's in music composition, ladies and gentlemen. David Acevedo is going to be a, a music master in no time. And he is really a brilliant composer with a brilliant mind and is now also a published author of an article on his website that will be the subject of our conversation today. So first of all, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your creative journey? Who are you? Let us know and let's, let's get the ball rolling with a little, little introduction. Sure, yeah. So my musical journey started like that of many people, which is um, taking childhood piano lessons. Um, I enjoyed it at the time, but at some point I stopped for various reasons and didn't pick up piano again. Um, and then when I was around 10 or so, um, for some reason I really wanted to play guitar and I was begging my parents for a guitar. They got me a guitar for Christmas. Um, so I started playing guitar and later bass. Um, but for some reason, the instrument that stuck was trumpet, uh, which I started playing um, in the New York City public school system. Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to go to um, schools, even starting in elementary school, that had very good music programs. Um, so I started playing trumpet in fifth grade, you know, kind of your typical elementary, middle school, uh, symphonic band type stuff. Right. Um, but my middle school actually did have a really good Latin jazz band, which is rare very rare at that level mm -hmm. um perhaps one of only two schools in the city that has that sort of thing or at least right. that did at the time um so i played trumpet in that ensemble i played some bass in that ensemble got exposure to 
Latin jazz specifically um, at a very formative time. And, you know, I was beginning to become more advanced, definitely wanted to continue at the next level. Um, So I continued my schooling at LaGuardia High School, um, which I'm sure many of our listeners know about. It's, It's like a kind of a magnet public high school in New York City for not just music, but um, all sorts of uh, performing arts and visual art. Um, so it was at LaGuardia where I really focused in on trumpet, specifically right. because I I simply just did not have time for the other instruments anymore. Um, so I played all sorts of things there, and I know we'll talk about that later, but um, I played in jazz big bands, jazz combos, orchestras, um, musical pit, even um, a couple of rock bands on occasion. Um, and then I continued on, um, as you mentioned to Columbia, where we had the pleasure of meeting each other and, um, did all sorts of new things there, which again, we will talk about. Um, and I've kind of settled into, uh, what I'm up to now where I'm still playing plenty of trumpet, um, but also composing just as seriously, um, and just trying to figure out ways to move forward. Right on. And so it sounds like you you had a very diverse musical upbringing, would you say? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I played all sorts of uh, different music, listened to all sorts of different music. Um, in, in high school as well, I, I was doing a youth Latin jazz program on Saturdays. Um, my parents played different kinds of music at home. Um, when I was a teenager, I, I fell in love with metal, mm-hmm. so I was listening to a lot of that, too. Um, so I, I certainly had a very um, diverse musical environment, both in terms of what I was listening to and in terms of what I was playing. Um, one that I think is far more diverse than your average high school musician. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's in no small part because of you know the fact that I was in New York City. Mm-hmm. And that's where so many of these things are happening all the time. Right. And I think we, we both experience that very diverse range of musical styles that we grew up listening to and playing and later on composing in. And now you're studying composition at Stony Brook and you're, you, you were led to write this article on musical identity crises. So why don't you talk to us about why you wrote this article and specifically at this point in your life? Sure, yes. So in college at Columbia, um, I went through at least a few um, what I'm calling musical identity crises, which I will define in a bit. Um, But I was so busy during school that I actually didn't have a lot of time to reflect upon them. Um, Just because, you know, I would be feeling this way and be thinking about these issues and then, oh, there's a midterm next week. Can't think about it anymore. Right. Um, But after finishing school, um, not that I've uh, not been busy, but it's been a different kind of busy in which I've had more time to actually think about what I was experiencing, um, you know, try and process these thoughts more. Um, And in recent years, I've I've really come to process these things through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be clear, the the identity crises did not 
stop in college. They continued after college. Um, and so as I became more familiar with what the crises felt like um, and strategies to deal with them and to try to avoid them in the future, um, I, was, I, I felt compelled to kind of write my thoughts out and I'm happy with the results. Um, and I've quickly learned that I'm not by, I'm by no means alone, um, in this experience. Right. So in your experience and as you write about what is a musical identity crisis and we can even start with what is a musical identity? Yeah. So when I say musical identity, what I mean is basically, um, how you envision yourself as a musician, in my case, specifically as a performer, um, I did not really compose uh, very seriously until maybe about four years ago. Um, but that's entered the picture as well. But at first it was about performing. And so um, very simply, your music identity could be, I'm a pop singer. Right. I am a um, classical violinist. Um, it's how you describe yourself right. based on what you're doing musically, right? Right. And, and it's important that it goes beyond actions and it actually begins to define your person. And mm -hmm. so most people would not simply say, I play classical music on violin. They would say, I am a classical violinist, right? right. And so it becomes who they are, not just what they do. And of course, the further you progress in music, the more it becomes who you are and not just what you do. Um, I would not say I was a pianist when I was taking piano lessons as a six-year-old, but now, you know, I am a trumpeter. I don't just play trumpet, if that makes sense. Right. So that's what I mean by musical identity. Um, and then a musical identity crisis is um, basically when you are unsure about what your musical identity is or mm -hmm. what it should be. Um, and therefore, the feeling that the foundation of your musical practice as a whole is unstable. Mm -hmm. And how did this manifest with you? What, what were the musical identities that you were grappling with and maybe clashing with each other that you found yourself deciding between? Yeah, so it, I think it really solidified in high school. Um, I was at a school in which suddenly most musicians around me were very serious about their music. It wasn't just something that they were doing for fun. It wasn't just something that they were doing because they needed to do a club in school and that was the least horrible one they could find. Yeah. <laughs> it was something that they actually did because they loved and they auditioned for that school and went there because they loved it and because they wanted to take it to the next level. So that was a new environment for me. Um, and I quickly found that people's musical identities were very solid at a very young age. I'm sure we all know or at least have heard of, you know, your typical, you know, say classical pianist who has played since he was three years old. Um, that's all he's ever done. Um, and now that he's uh, in his 20s and he's worked hard all these years, he's an amazing musician, right? We, we know people like that. Right. Yeah. So I knew a lot of those people. I knew 
um, a lot of jazz players as well that had a similar level of dedication to jazz music from a young age. Um, and so it became clear at LaGuardia um, that there were really two primary, uh, maybe three primary camps that mm-hmm. people fell into. Um, you were either a jazz guy in that you primarily played jazz. You were a classical guy. Um, there were some people there also who kind of formed like an uh, indie or rock music scene. Um, but that wasn't really what I was interacting with. For me, it was more jazz or classical. Are you a jazz guy or are you a classical guy? Um, and there really were not many people, if any, who did both to the same extent. And so when, when you encountered that question, and when you asked this question, are you a jazz guy or a classical guy, what, is, what do both realms look like? What do both identities look like in practice and also in, in mindset? Because they are different styles of music, right? And they each have their own history and, and practices associated with it. So what did that look like when, when you were at, at LaGuardia and, and then Columbia? Oh gosh, yeah, some of it is kind of cringeworthy in retrospect, but the jazz scene, which I loved, by the way, yeah, um, you know, as you might expect, a bit more laid back, you know, people are wearing funky clothes with funky patterns, um, you know, that kind of thing, whereas the classical scene is, you know, more buttoned up, um, more of a kind of rigid musical education type of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these people did the Juilliard pre-college program, so they were involved with that as well. Um, and I found, you know, I, I, I experienced a lot, a lot of pressure to kind of self-categorize um, when I was there. No one actually asked me the question, are you a jazz guy or a classical guy? But the question was implicit a lot, in a lot of ways. Right. And it sounds like these musical identities were not just what ensembles people were playing in or what instruments people were playing, but also how they projected that out into the world. What extracurriculars they were associated with, how they dressed, how they acted. It's something that they signaled, not just did in private, but also in public. Oh, yeah, and it also shapes your entire social circle as well. Mm -hmm. Most of the classical people, their very best friends, their boyfriends and girlfriends, were within that world, Mm -hmm. and the same in the jazz scene. And there was, you know, some, of course, there's some overlap socially, but generally speaking, it seemed pretty siloed. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I'm sure we can say that both sides felt superior to the other for various reasons. You know, I, I used to, um, I used to have a very caricatured view of classical music um, when I was in high school. Where it was like, okay, this is nice, but at the end of the day, you're just reading notes off of a page. Sure. Jazz musicians are the real musicians because we actually improvise, and I, there are certainly versions of that going the other way around as well. Mm-hmm. And so, were you? A, a jazz guy then or a classical guy? If, if I had asked you while you were a student at LaGuardia and, and now looking back on it, 
How did that How did that work out for you? Yeah, well, as I'm sure you can tell from a couple of the comments I just made, I was a jazz guy, or at least I thought I was a jazz guy. Um, but why I was a jazz guy was not really clear. I mean, if you were to have asked me at the time, I probably would have said something like, okay, well, most of my friends are jazz guys. I really like playing in the big band. Um, so I guess I'm a jazz guy, mm -hmm. question mark. <laughs> Although I had friends in the classical scene as well. I really enjoyed playing an orchestra. I did well at it. And so there's really no reason from a rational standpoint why I would pick one over the other. It just seemed to happen that way. And I kind of fell into the jazz circle. And I mean, I, I still played in orchestras because I was required to. And, but that that's the extent of what most of the jazz guys would do. They would really be dedicated to the jazz ensembles. And then if they were to play any sort of classical music, it was because it was required of them. And so to answer your question, I was a jazz guy. Okay, you were a jazz guy. And I, I would say I experienced some of that myself as well when I, when I went to Hunter College High School. And I've, I think a lot of the, some of the musical choices that I made and perhaps you made and, and many of us made when we were young led us down, we, led us down a path that we sort of fell into. For example, when I was in fourth grade, I chose to play the trumpet for my school band because that's when the band program started. We had to choose a wind instrument and I read The Trumpet of the Swan by E.B. White and I was like, the trumpet is a cool instrument. <laughs> I choose the trumpet. And that led me, put me into the path of playing in wind ensembles, concert bands, mm -hmm. which I did in high school, which led me down the path of playing at the Columbia Wind Ensemble and then writing wind ensemble music. And so that was a musical identity I fell into, perhaps faded in some ways, but also one that I felt drawn to because I, I enjoyed wind music, right? And how did you, so you were, you were a jazz guy, but you also had some classical tendencies, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, like I said, I really, I truly enjoyed playing orchestral music. Mm -hmm. um, but for whatever reason, I never considered it a path for the future. It was just something that I happened to enjoy doing right now, whereas jazz was what I was going to do in the future. And it's funny because I actually never had a consistent jazz trumpet teacher um, on the private level. Whereas I studied with a really wonderful classical trumpet teacher for years during high school. Um, and, you know, he was wonderful. I enjoyed my time with him. But something about it mentally just did not click in the same way. Um, and, and I just didn't, didn't consider it further. And, and in retrospect, it, I don't think that I gave classical music a fair shake. Mm -hmm. And... Based on your own experience and understanding of, of these genres of music, how would you differentiate classical from jazz? And do you think that this is a fair dichotomy, the idea of a classical guy versus a jazz guy? Yeah. Um, so stereotypically, uh, you know, a classical guy, and I'll, I'll speak in terms of trumpet because that's what I know. Um, a classical trumpeter is going to be primarily concerned with um, 
a classical tone quality that is a tone quality that is historically considered to be uh, appropriate for the genre which is a very clear clean tone um, very strong emphasis on precise technique um, which goes beyond tone of course and includes articulation and, and flexibility and all of these things um, and then of course the most important thing which i definitely did not understand in high school um, is that it's not just reading notes off of a page it is bringing music to life through the art of interpreting written music um, which is an entire world of creativity that i was really not attuned to at the time and that in some ways i feel like i'm just starting to grapple with now on the other hand jazz trumpeters are um, generally speaking, not as concerned with the same level of precision of technique, um, although technique is still incredibly important, uh, particularly in you know a big band setting. Um, a big band lead trumpeter needs to have great technique or else he's gonna have a bad time. Um, but it, it's, it's just a different frame of mind when it, when it comes to the technique. And then in jazz, of course, the m most important part of the music is the improvisation, um, the what some like to call spontaneous composition. Um, and so it's not necessarily that the two styles are um, diametrically opposed to each other. I would not say that. Um, it's not even that they use entirely different elements. Um, it's more that they have different musical priorities. Um, and it's important to remember that compared to Western classical music, jazz is incredibly young. Um, yeah. Jazz is barely 100 years old. Um, and, you know, we can trace Western classical music um, over a thousand years. And so, and, and jazz is in some ways an outgrowth of classical music. They call it America's classical music um, because it, it, at least in the traditional form, um, relies heavily on Western conceptions of harmony. Um, and so that's one reason why I don't think it's really a fair dichotomy, because they're just incredibly different genres um, with, with just different histories, different length histories. Um, also, when we say classical music, what do we mean? Do we mean classical period music? Do we mean medieval music? Do we mean Renaissance music? <laughs> there are right. centuries and centuries and centuries worth of music um, in which I don't even think that the term classical music is particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. um, when you say classical music, most people are picturing, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, even those three are really different from each other. And then if you stretch further, both back and forward in time, it, to, to some extent, it's a meaningless characterization. I think it is still helpful in some sense, but um, to answer your question more directly, I don't, I don't think it's a fair dichotomy. Um, and the reason why I think that the dichotomy exists nonetheless Mm -hmm. is simply that these are the two styles of music that are most commonly taught in our educational systems. Right. You know, um, not just in New York City, but all over the country. Uh, generally, high schools and colleges will have 
a classical music program. Jazz education has become more and more common as the years have gone on um, to, to the point where now it's pretty institutionalized. Um, and outside of that, there's not really a lot. You have, you know, marching band culture, which is kind of its own thing. But I don't see a lot more than that in terms of formalized programs of study. So that leads student musicians, including myself, when I was a teenager, to believe that these are the two big options. Right. You do jazz or you do classical, pick one. That's mm-hmm. what the message is. Right. And I, we, we both experienced this play out at Columbia to some extent. I know for myself, similar to you, I grew up playing the trumpet in school band programs and found myself encountering this question of what kind of musician was I? You know, for myself, I considered myself a classical musician. You know, I, I studied, I took piano lessons when I was a kid, right? Studied some classical piano, Czerny, etc., cetera, uh, Chopin. When I was in school, I played in classical ensembles. Wind band repertoire straddles both worlds to some extent, yeah. straddles different styles, but the kinds of pieces we played were, were in a classical mindset, you know, still reading notes off the page, less room for improvisation, less syncopation, and uh, less jazz history behind it. And so when I, I remember discovering jazz, because I discovered, I really fell into jazz somewhat late. Mm. Like I remember in junior and senior year of high school, I, uh, I, I, I found Sonny Rollins. I remember mm. listening to Saxophone Colossus mm. by Sonny Rollins. That was the first real jazz album I heard. And I was captured by it because it was a different there were different elements and there was a different mindset in it. And so when I got to Columbia, I auditioned for, and I, I sang with the, the jazz acapella group, Uptown Vocal, mm-hmm. which even though it's, it's an acapella group, which has you know, a long history, uh, especially associated with classical choral music, we were doing vocal jazz, which has its own history. Mm-hmm. And then I played with the Columbia Big Band, right? Also trumpet and experiencing a clash between, you know, I had... Sort of, I had really grown up playing trumpet with a classical mindset of reading what's written and sticking to that. Whereas in a big band, you're encouraged, and in a jazz setting, right? You're encouraged to introduce your personality into it a little bit more, have some more creative flexibility, room for improvisation. That's a big part of the jazz mindset. And that's something I experienced as well, these identities clashing in a way. And we both also encountered this as composers, mm-hmm. right? As composers, we're, we're trying to figure out what we want to say, musically, creatively, what feels honest coming from us. As a composer, what, what kind of music did you find yourself writing in college? How did it explore your musical identities, combine them, or, or explore how they, how they clashed in some ways, too? Yeah, so I would say that I started composing seriously um, around the 2016, late 2016, early 2017. Um, I attended a summer music program um, called the School for Improvised Music Summer Intensive, um, which is run by 
one of my trumpet heroes, the great Ralph Alessi. Um, and that really got me interested in writing. Um, and I, I, I believe, yeah, I wrote a piece for that program that we ended up performing. Um, and so when the program was over and I got back to school at Columbia, I had a sudden urge to form my own band um, and to write original music for it. Um, what that band became was kind of a melting pot for all of my primary musical interests, at least what they were at the time, which was jazz, metal, um, and what I had been exposed to for the first time at the summer program, which was free improvisation. For those who don't know, free improvisation is not... I don't know if it's really a genre per se. Um, it basically refers to music that is entirely improvised um, without any, uh, without necessarily having any ties to specific style. And so, yeah. um, but what I found is it, at least the people I was surrounded with then, who was mainly um, jazz musicians who were partaking in free improvisation, but not exclusively. So the band that I formed, which you're familiar with, uh, was called I Hear, um, which was a five-piece group. I was playing trumpet for it and writing most of the music for it. Um, it sounded like, uh, you know, a cross between uh, Steve Coleman and uh, Meshuggah and uh, Tim Byrne for the two people out there who know all those <laughs> musicians. Um, and that was my first experience composing, and it was wonderful. Learned a lot, um, both as a composer and a band leader. Uh, we played at various venues around the city. Um, and so then that was my first taste at composition. I wanted something more. And so I enrolled in a composition seminar um, at Columbia, and thankfully um, I was admitted with very little experience. Shout out to Zasha DeCastri. Um, and so I was in this seminar in which I was first introduced to so-called new music. Right. Now, that's an interesting term because when I was in high school, there was a new music ensemble. Um, and it was for music, you know, original music written by the students. But um, it generally meant like indie rock and some hip hop kind of things. Yeah. Um, neo soul. That kind of, So when I was in this course and kept hearing the term <laughs> new music, it was actually pretty confusing for me. Um, but I learned that in some cases it can be, you know, compared to contemporary classical music, um, basically modern experimental music that is typically uh, an outgrowth of classical music. Um, so I was exposed to that for the first time, which was also exciting. Um, I liked some of what I heard. I hated some of what I heard. I hated a lot of what I heard. <laughs> um, and part of that is because a lot of it is so foreign to my musical background um, in terms of the um, musical priorities at play. So what I, what I felt was that a lot of the music I heard was all about harmony and pitch mm -hmm. at the ex seemingly at the expense of everything else. Including 
rhythm rhythm meter groove um all sorts of things and you know in my musical background rhythm is king you know right um and so that was pretty disorienting to me um and like i said i just simply did not like a lot of what i heard and yet i felt that if i admitted that i didn't like it i was somehow not enlightened enough um and so i generally kept my mouth shut and was like would just say oh yeah that's very interesting you know yeah uh, <laughs> Um, and we, you know, we had the course together when I, when I first took it. Um, what I didn't know at the time is that, um, the slice of the new music community at Columbia is a very, very small slice of the pie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, don't get me wrong. I loved my professors. They were wonderful to me. My TAs, my peers were all great, but most of them were creating music that I could not really connect to in any, uh, you know, deep way. But I learned that that's not all that new music is. Um, as I began to explore on my own, I kind of discovered um, my preferred slice, sure, yeah. <laughs> which I, I guess can kind of be fall within the minimalist or post-minimalist camp. Um, although it's not always that. And that, that's kind of what I've become attached to over the last couple of years. And w so when did, you, when did you find yourself writing music that felt honest? You, you, you have found yourself in, in positions as a composer and as a performer as well that you were creating music that feels true to yourself, right? Yes, I would hope so. <laughs> right. And how does that does that have any relationship to how you consider yourself creatively as if you write a new piece and are thinking about how to categorize it, like the new composition you just put out called Hyperhocket, which we'll talk about, perhaps we could talk about, how does that showcase in any way your, your musical identities? Because you're, you're also, at the end of the day, as composers, we we're creating our own musical identity for our music, right? Right. And in some ways, we're, we're synthesizing the music that we've listened to, that we've composed, the styles that we studied in college. How are they coming together for you now and, and in, your, in your latest work specifically? Yeah, well, I'll actually take it back to I Hear first. Uh, so at that time... Like I said, it did incorporate a lot of different things like jazz and metal. Um, there were some hip-hop influences from other people in the group. Um, and I would not call the music jazz, per se. At least jazz with a big J, if you will. Um, but it was written and performed within a jazz context. You know, it was composed of jazz musicians. We played at jazz venues. Um, so generally speaking, it was within the jazz side of things. Now, approximately halfway through college, um, I became pretty discontent playing within the jazz sphere. Um, and, you know, that's one of the, uh, you know, musical identity crises. Um, I had been a jazz guy for years and suddenly I felt like I didn't like it very much anymore. Um, and 
yet that's what I had built my entire foundation upon as an artist. And so I felt that beginning to crumble and didn't really know what to do. Well, here I am in these composition classes, experiencing music that is, you know, nothing if not interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yes. I said, I didn't like all of it, but it was new. Um, and in that sense, exciting. Um, and so I found in retrospect that perhaps with I Here, I was trying to force my musical personality to exist within a jazz setting. Yeah. And I, I ultimately don't think that's where it ought to be, at least right now. And so that's why I've kind of taken a step back and pivoted a bit to the new music side of things. Um, bringing all of my musical baggage with me, I have no choice but to do that. I can't just leave it behind. And I do bring a lot of elements of jazz and other um, forms of African and African-American music with me um, when I write new music. And the minimalist and post-minimalist movements are heavily influenced by that as well. Um, and I, that's probably why I connect with them the most. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's less of a matter of um, reinventing yourself, so to speak. I don't, I don't really know if that's possible. But more of a matter of composing and playing honestly um, and just being willing to follow your ear where it wants to go. If I continued to try and force myself to play within a jazz setting, I, w- I would have been miserable. I mean, to an extent I was already unhappy um, and discontent. And my ear was pulling me elsewhere. And so eventually I stopped being so stubborn and actually followed it um, rather than trying to force myself to be a certain thing. Um, And so in my most recent work, like the piece you just mentioned, um, Hyper Hocket, which is a piece for a trumpet quartet and some light electronic effects, um, it really blends not only jazz and classical, but other things as well. Um, generally, I'm playing with a, a classical tone on the trumpet, although not entirely because there's a section in which um, I'm kind of improvising with myself on uh, two separate, separate flugelhorn tracks, which is more of a, um, a jazz tone and approach to the trumpet. Um, it does fit within new music and contemporary classical music to an extent, but you know, also it grooves, man. It like it grooves. I, I have no better word for it. And that, you know, that's one of the biggest things in which I've taken with me into the new music world is groove. Um, and you know, so you have improvisation, you have groove and yet you have more classical elements like strictly notated music that I do play with exactitude. And so I I feel like it's one of my most honest pieces yet. Yeah. I I love the way that you describe it. And I agree. I, and I would say what I appreciate hearing in your music as I've, as I've listened to it throughout the years and as I've heard you evolve as a composer, I really enjoy the 
blend of styles that feels honest and authentic. I, I, I heard it in I Hear. I heard your metal influences, your jazz influences, Steve Coleman, M-Bass influence, and they came together to create something that sounded fresh hmm. and that sounded like you had something meaningful to say. I heard that in Hyper Hocket too. It was a, reflesh, a refreshing blend of elements from a classical mindset, like this idea of hocketing, which goes back centuries, right. and this classical tone that you play in the trumpet, combined with electronics, right? Combined with a minimalist aesthetic, and even the trumpet itself as an instrument plays with musical identities because the trumpet straddles so many different musical worlds. It straddles the classical world. It has a long his history in Baroque, classical, romantic, orchestral music, and is a featured important instrument in a lot of jazz music as well and rock music, etc. And so I, I appreciated hearing how you're blending them together to create your own unique voice, which which we're trying to do as composers. And I think you, you raise a great, as you talk about what you, your, you, your ear drew you towards, that's how we determine in part our musical identity, right? How do we, especially now as we're both getting into our professional careers, how are we determining our musical identity. Right, and the ear is a mysterious thing. In, in the article I write, um, follow, your, follow your ear and not your brain. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I'm not saying that your ear is an autonomous part of your body, but, you know, figuratively speaking, your ear is a, is a, is a mysterious thing. We often cannot explain why we are drawn to certain music, why we're, why we are repelled by certain other music. Um, it, it is the ear that leads. And then maybe later down the line, you can try and explain things, um, you know, intellectually about what happened. But ultimately I think musicians ought to follow their ear first and foremost. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, or at least at first while you're doing it. Like you mentioned all of these influences you heard in this piece that I wrote. I agree that they're there. Was I actively thinking about that when I was writing? Absolutely not. I was just writing. I was following my ear. Um, I composed very intuitively. Um, and yet, like I said before, I have no choice but to bring my emotion emotional, my musical and emotional background yeah. into the composition. I, I just, the way I see it is that you simply have to, there's no use fighting it. And so you might as well try to make it the most beautiful that it can be. And so of course there's going to be, um, more jazz or as our former professor George Lewis would put it, Afrological. Um, elements of the piece and of course there's going to be urological elements of the piece or more European type elements and that's unavoidable we, we, we have to follow the ear and if we say that we're going to strictly do one or the other we're 
we're basically, you know, we're putting our creativity in the straitjacket. Right. I think that's a very salient point and something that I encountered and felt myself not only as a composer, but also just as a creative person in general, since, you know, I, I do a lot of things creatively. And, to say the least. Right. Have, <laughs> have always done throughout college. You know, I was, I was, I straddled many worlds. I played in the wind ensemble. I also wrote and conducted for the wind ensemble. I was in acapella. I sang with them, music directed them. Then I got into musical theater while at Columbia. And now I'm living very much in the musical theater world as a composer, as a music director, and now as a teacher. And I've, I found myself always following my intuition mm-hmm. throughout every corner, which is valuable because I, 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 I want to make sure that I am feeling good. And I think we want to make sure that we feel like we're doing the right thing. We're in the right spot as creatives. We're being true to ourselves. At the same time, I found that I was pulling myself in many different directions and spreading myself a bit thin as a creative. I was composing for wind band. I was arranging for jazz choir. I was conducting musical theater. Now I'm teaching. Recently in my professional life, I got into acting. I'm doing a lot of singing professionally now as well. And so if you were to ask me, you know, to introduce myself, Brent, who are you as a creative? I have to list off a whole bunch of things, right? I'm a composer, arranger, conductor, singer, etc., which perhaps is not necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time, maybe you found this as well. I look at my peers who have narrowed their focus into one arena. I have, I have a, a colleague who is a, a young conductor our age who's going off conducting ensembles in Europe, winning conducting competitions, has his own orchestra he works with, and is really solidly a conductor. That's his musical identity mm-hmm. and has put everything into that. I take a look at that and think to myself, that's one way to go, right? That, that could have been me. Not that I have regrets, but it sounds like we, as we're following our ear, as we're following our intuition and paying attention to what feels like the right, honest thing to do creatively, we diversify ourselves, right? Across different ways to be a creative. Yeah, and, and for the record, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with committing yourself to one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm your conductor friend sounds like he's doing very well for himself. I know plenty of people who basically do one thing and stick to it. And that is great. Um, is there a way to do that in which you're cutting off other creative outlets? Certainly. Is there a way to do that? That's healthy. Yes. Um, at the same time, you know, artists like us who do all sorts of different things. Yeah. We do have the capacity for greater creative breadth. But there's also a flip side to that, too, in which it's easy to be somewhat directionless. If Mm -hmm. you're doing 15 different things at all times, how advanced are you becoming at any one of them? Well, maybe not that advanced, you know, and so um, there there are pros and cons to each approach. Um, I have discovered the hard way over the years that 
I'm not that guy who can just do one thing. I just, I can't. Um, and I'm not saying that's because I'm some kind of special, you know, person who just can't be put in a box. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that my, my interests are, are varied enough to not allow that. I've tried to do it. It doesn't work. Right. I love, I'm the kind of person who loves to decide on something and just do it hundred percent. I like to plan for the future. And so sometimes I would love nothing more in the world than just to say, okay, I'm a classical trumpet player. That's it. Mm -hmm. End of story. Because in a way that would be so much simpler. It's not easy. Right. But it's simple in the sense that I know what I'm doing. This is a traditional path for trumpet players that trumpeters have done for many years. So there's a lot of precedent for it. And I'm just going to do it. But every time I've tried that, I have come to a musical identity crisis in which I realize that it's not the only thing I want to do, that I should not have built everything upon that. And then it comes crashing down and I feel like I'm back on square one. Um, rather than, you know, like think, think about it this way. Mm -hmm. You have, what I was doing was building the, I'm building my musical identity upon a flat concrete foundation. Okay. If that crumbles, it's all gone. Yeah. Rather, um, you know, there are some building foundations in which it's primarily through various pillars spread out throughout the bottom of the building. So that in that scenario, if you have one that begins to crumble, it's not really a big deal. Yeah. You still have several others in place. And while you're figuring out what to do with the one, you can just pursue those. And so... I've learned the hard way over the years a few strategies to avoid musical identity crises while still um, creating music actively. Um, and I think it's helpful to think about it. And I, I'm using a lot of metaphors, but... Metaphors are great. Yeah. In a, in a peaks, you're kind of typical peaks and valleys type metaphor. Um, so let's say you're at a musical peak. You are playing music that you love, um, you're thriving, you're having a great time. The greatest temptation at that time, at least in my experience, is to put the blinders on, so to speak, and to block out everything else and just ignore it and just go full speed ahead. And so, you know, I've had times in which that was... Um, you know, jazz playing for me. I was really enjoying the jazz playing I was doing. It was great. Um, and so I just ignored everything else. Yeah. And that's just setting yourself up for failure because in the event that you conclude that, you know, in that example, I don't only want to do jazz. Well, guess what? You've set yourself up to do nothing else. So then you're yeah. kind of left with nothing, which is the next stage. <laughs> Um, which is a valley where, you know, I've, I'll, I'll be perfectly candid. I've had periods um, in my musical life, even in, you know, the last couple of years in which 
I had no desire to play trumpet at all. Yeah. Trumpet, as you know, is an unforgiving instrument. It's very hard. You basically have to play it every day in order to maintain your chops. And so if you're not feeling motivated, it is rough to force yourself to sit down and play something like the trumpet. And there were times where I actually considered just flat out quitting my instrument. Yeah. And I was close to doing that. Um, of course, being, you know, uh, isolated from other musicians for the last year and a half did not help with that. Thankfully, I did not quit. Um, and so I found that the best thing to do when you're in that kind of valley is to simply play anything. Play anything. Anything. Play anything. If something even remotely sounds fun, play that. And so I was kind of in a crisis point in which I was doing a lot of improvisational music playing and, you know, it was good, um, but for some reason I grew disenchanted with it, at least at the time. And so I just needed to play something. And so for a few weeks or even months, all I did was play out of this classical etude book that I was given by my one of my teachers, and I just played that. It was music. I was right. playing trumpet. I was using trumpet to play music. That, like, the most basic foundational level. I was doing something. And it was enjoyable, and it's exactly what I needed. And while I was busy with that, then I kind of had time for my um, artistic senses and for my emotions to recuperate so that when I'm in a better headspace, I can think about next steps rather than just giving up. Right. Yeah. And so you, you found yourself, as we all do, in these peaks and valleys of dealing with our musical or creative identity. And one way that if we are experiencing a musical identity crisis, we could go past it or get out of it is to just do something, create something, not even thinking about it. What are, what are other ways, strategies that you've found to mitigate or deal with a musical identity crisis? Yeah. So another one that I talk about in the article is, um, to, at least for now, forget about specific genres, um, and to get much more specific with what you're doing. So, for example, um, as I mentioned, you know, I was becoming less interested in jazz playing, but I knew that I still really liked to improvise. And of course, jazz does not have a monopoly on improvisation. There are many other things that involve improvisation. And so I knew that I liked to play trumpet in the most general sense. I liked to improvise. Um, and so I just did that. I just improvise sometimes freely, sometimes with certain constraints or rules that I would make up for myself in a given practice session. Not worrying about genre. Right, not worrying about genre. I was not, I wasn't playing jazz. I wasn't really playing anything specific. I was just playing and doing the very most basic things that I knew I liked to do. At the same time, I think that forgetting about genre 
also just doesn't work in the long run. Um, I know lots of musicians who say something along the lines of, you know, oh, forget about genre. You know, I don't, I don't play genres. I just, I just play music, man. I just play music. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, I kind of understand what people are saying, but ultimately I don't think it's possible to get rid of genre. I think genre is how um, musicians naturally, ideally a ton musicians naturally and organically group themselves based on common interests and common aspirations. Of course, as we discussed earlier, there are many ways in which musicians are forced into particular genres um, in a way that's inorganic. But the concept of genre itself, I, th I think is a perfectly good thing for music. And not only is it good because it allows um, certain strains of musical thought to progress, um, it is impossible to stop as well. It, it, there's, no, there's no stopping it, you know, and it's, it's not just because Spotify has a playlist for every genre. Like that, that's a result of the reality, not the cause of it. Yeah, genre is also, this is a rabbit hole we don't need to get down, but genre I think is also useful to a listener, especially I found as, as a musical theater composer, writing songs within certain genres make sense given the story that you want to tell or given a feeling you want to elicit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like I said, feel free to leave genre considerations aside temporarily, but um, ultimately I don't think it's possible or useful to do that in the long term. Um, I think it's ultimately isolating because genre is not the only way, but it's one of the ways in which we tie ourselves to other musicians. Um, and if we try to cut all of those ties in the name of being, you know, supposedly... Uh, as open-minded as possible, I think um, it, it's an isolating experience. Yeah. Any any other strategies to a, a creative person who is grappling with a musical identity crisis for how we can get past it and be more secure in our musical identity or creative identity? Yeah, I mean... Those are those are really the big ones I've I've come across. Um, one more that I'll mention as we as we wrap up is um, you know feel free to deal with it in non musical ways or you know whatever your art is. Feel free to go outside of that and just do something else. Yeah, I've that's that's wonderful that you mentioned that because I've experienced that myself as I branched out into different creative fields like acting. When I just started auditioning for productions and doing some film and stage musical acting, I discovered that many of the qualities or many of the practices that informed how I played music or sung or composed, I found in a, in a different context, and that inspired my other creative work. What I learned through acting helped inform how I conduct or how I compose. Right, and, mm -hmm. and you didn't pursue those opportunities because you stopped and decided that you were going to be an actor for the rest of your life. Right. Like we said, you were 
just approaching it intuitively and taking on opportunities as they came across. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the way to go, you know, and, and if you're in an artistic identity crisis on the one hand, don't give up what don't give up your art by any means. It's the wrong time to do it. But also feel free to explore other avenues of your creativity because as you just mentioned, there are unforeseen ties between all of these things that will likely come across and will not only inform our original art form, but actually motivate it in a way that you might not expect. That is a, a beautiful place for us us to wrap up our conversation today, David. One, one more question for you as we think about our creative identity. I'm sure you, now that you're studying at Stony Brook and writing music that speaks to you honestly, what is your, how would you describe yourself musically or creative? What is your identity and do you feel sec more secure about it today? Well, I certainly feel more secure about it today. Um, I, I learned the hard way numerous times not to um, artificially limit what I do or how I do it. Um, and so it may be a cop-out, but the answer I'll give you is I'm a composer, I'm a trumpeter, I'm a writer. Um, right now, that is within a new music environment, and I'm fully committed to that right now but I'm not absolutely committed to it. That could change, and I'm open to that change in the future. And I've learned to not artificially try and stop that change if it comes. And so what I would say to our listeners is, whatever you're doing right now that's fulfilling, keep doing it seriously. This is not a call to you know, not pursue aggressively the art that you're doing. You should, but where the mistake lies is to absolutely commit yourself to something for the rest of your life when you have no idea how your interests are going to change in the future. So commit yourself to your art, but not in an absolute sense. Be open to change, and when it comes, be ready for it. Excellent, David. You, you heard it here first, folks. And so once again, I, I want to thank you for coming on the State of Art podcast to talk, have a meaningful, valuable conversation about an important topic that we're, again, we're all dealing with as creatives, but also as individuals living our lives in this world. So thank you. Thank you. Everybody, please read David's article. Uh, it's called On Musical Identity Crises. That's Is right. That right? And, and where can we find it? Where can we find you? Where can we listen to your music, read your writing, Tell us. Yeah, so you can um, find me uh, on my new website, which I launched uh, maybe a month ago at this point, davidacevedomusic.com, simple enough. Um, on there you will find some of my compositions, some of my trumpet playing, um, some of my writing. Um, I aim to get more articles up um, in the future, but uh, school starts in... Uh, less than 48 hours, so <laughs> may not have time for that right away. Um, but anyway, davidacevedomusic.com. Um, that will link out to my SoundCloud, which is 
David underscore Acevedo underscore music. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at David Acevedo music. Excellent. David Acevedo music, everybody. And so that, that concludes our episode for today. Thank you all once again for listening to the State of Art podcast. I'm your host once again, Brent Morden. If you like what you heard, give us a like, give us a subscribe, tell your friends, share this with anybody you know who you think be interested in hearing our conversation. And if you have any comments, you want to respond to anything we talked about today, you can email us at thestateofartpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, until next time, have a great day, stay creative, and champion yourself.